All right, so in the interest of conserving time, I am going to break from tradition this week and skip the lengthy review of last week's message. So if you didn't make it last week, I'm sorry. Uh, it was a second message on wives and the biblical view of women, and frankly, I think enough is enough. We're going to move on to husbands and men today. So uh, Colossians 3, verse 19 <clears throat> It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Here again, because we already covered the created order and the whole concept of headship while we were working through verse 18, we're going to jump right into understanding and applying our passage by looking at the verb love. Oh, wait, you guys already know... Uh, that, so we can probably skip over that, right? Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion designed to do somebody else good at your own expense. Um, we have that definition. Um, and because we have it, here's something you probably haven't thought of that is very helpful about having that definition for love. If you ever encounter somebody in your life who you care about and you find them to be in a depressed state, they wake up on the wrong side of the bed or they're in an extended season of difficulty uh, and they're just kind of down. One of the least helpful things you can do is command them to be happy, right? It doesn't work. I mean, you can try it. It does not work any more than it would work on you if you were down and somebody said, just cheer up. Oh, I hadn't thought of that, right? So, <clears throat> if love, biblically, were only a feeling of romantic or brotherly inclination for other people, it would be unreasonable to command someone to do it in the same way it's unreasonable to command somebody to feel anything else. Because we know it's not a feeling, it's not difficult for us, we don't stumble. When you, when you understand that love is not an experience of involuntary emotion, but a practice of voluntary action, it's entirely reasonable then for God to command us to love. But if you take the world's definition of love, which is this flighty, sometimes it's there, sometimes it's gone, feeling that you might have for another person, it makes no sense for God to command us to love. Um, yeah, I'm not going to, we'll leave it there. It's also probably worth pointing out that where a wife is called to submit, a husband is called to love. Uh, do you think that's significant? Let's assume... <laughs> That submit is the hardest thing that God ask, asks a wife to do. What's, what's it reasonable to conclude about him telling husbands to love? I'm just thinking, I don't know because I'm not a woman, but I'm thinking it might be the equally difficult thing for, for my gender just by default. And I worked pretty hard, if I do say so myself, the last two weeks to ensure that we understood how submission does not reduce 
a, a woman or a wife to second class status. Like it's not like, oh, get, get down there where you belong. That is not at all what the Bible was directing you to do. Instead, it's actually a beautiful portrayal. I just untucked my shirt with those shenanigans. A beautiful portrayal of Christ's relationship to God, right? This, submit, this submissive, subservient, subordinate role that Christ has to the Father. It's also a beautiful picture of the church's relationship to Christ. So we, as a church on the whole, subordinate to Christ. And, and so then when the Bible says that wives should subordinate or submit to their husbands, um, I think you have to continually remind yourself, I would, if I were a woman, I would have to continually remind myself that what I'm doing by obeying that directive is painting a picture of Jesus Christ and, and his relationship with the Father. So then I go, well, I wonder if, if I need to work equally hard this is back to me now, preaching, if I need to work equally hard to ensure that we understand that love is a portrayal of the relationship between God the Father and Christ, or between the church and Christ. And that what we're doing, just like a wife's submission paints a picture of Christ, the husband's love paints one as well. We'll see if I have to work that hard. Um, but let's look, go look at Ephesians 5. Oh, and also get a thumb in, in uh, 1 Peter 3. We'll do both. Ephesians 5, we'll pick it up in 25. And then we'll jump over in a minute here and look at, uh, look at 1 Peter 3. But Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but, you know, generally if you're mentally healthy, but nourishes and cherish, cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. So the husband's example is Christ who gave himself up for sinners. Try to stay with me. This is me walking back through what we just read that a lot of you did not listen to. All right, so I'm just saying it again. The husband's example Oh, let me also say this, because I, I know I said it last week or the week before, but it bears repeating. If you think because we're talking about husbands, you should have stayed home because you're not a husband, if you're not a husband, you're wrong. All right, so the husband's example is Christ, who gave himself up for sinners, Christ, who sets apart or sanctifies, is what the text said, sanctifies sinners, Christ who cleanses sinners by washing them in the word. And then verse 28 in Ephesians 5 repeats, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So in the same way, we should love our wives and adds, show the same care for her that you do your own body. So let's rehearse real quick. 
Love your wife like Jesus loves the church. Give yourself up for her. Set her apart from all others. Cleanse her with the gospel. So this is a spiritual cleansing, right? Care for her like you do your own flesh. And then I have a question. So if, if, we're, if you're willing to go along with me for now and say that that's what the Bible means when it says husbands love your wives, those things that I just laid out. Are you all gentlemen willing to go along with me? Can't see you, so I need to hear you. All right, thank you. Um, does that sound like the work of a tyrant? Does it say, unless she doesn't submit? Well, let's keep going. 1 Peter 3, 7. <clears throat> Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an... <laughs> In an understanding way. That's a way bigger ask than it appears when you just read it, right? Husbands? Showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. The expression um, of, of understanding, which means the expression of knowledge... I mean, the word here literally is gnosis, science, to know in the Greek. The expression of understanding, which means knowledge, to know, like possess all the degrees known to mankind. Let's say you do. There will never be a clearer depiction of your intellect than how you treat your wife. Listen to me, please. There will never be a clearer depiction of your intellect, how smart you are, really, than how you treat your wife. That's what I think. He, I mean, think about, what, what did Ephesians 5 say? Give yourself up for her. Set her apart from all others. Cleanse her with the word, wash her in the gospel, care for her like you do your own flesh, for no one ever hated his own body. There will never be a clearer depiction of, of your intellect than how you treat your wife. The expression of your knowledge as a man married to a woman is show her honor as the weaker vessel. So let's try that a different way. Show her honor as the weaker vessel. Bestow, uh, demonstrate. I don't know another word off the top of my head. But show esteem, dignity, value. Show her that you hold her in the highest regard of all things in your earthly life. We have intrusive thoughts, right? Oh, I wish I could remember the part of the brain that's responsible for shutting those down. <clears throat> it's probably the cerebellum. Anyway, every now and then you'll be driving. I'm not going to project on you. Every now and then I'll be driving and I'll see a crowd of people alongside the road. And I'll just, like this thought will pop into my head, man, what if somebody just veered over there and brrr, just mowed them down? Nobody invites that thought. You may not have that one, but you have similar ones. 
that just pop in your head, like things like you wonder. And then there's a part of your brain that is literally, they believe, responsible for just shutting those down. Okay? Some people have an underdeveloped that part of their brain. And they just do things that are intrusive. But the Bible said no one ever hated his own flesh. All the teenagers in the last 15 years who've, who've decided that a good way to deal with your psychological issues is to cut on yourself, hear the Bible say no one ever hated his own flesh, and you go, really? And I'm here to tell you, really, those with a fully developed brain capable of shutting down the intrusive thoughts and properly apprehending the value of the vessel that God has given you would never purposely harm themselves. This is part of the reason why suicide just does not compute with those who are left to deal with its aftermath. Murder, we can kind of get, because we've been there before in our own hearts. Like, ooh. But self-murder, we don't. And I suspect that the moment you do, the moment you're like, mm, I get it, you are at risk of doing it. Right? But no reasonable person ever harmed their own body. No fully functional, mentally sound person ever did that. And Paul, your Bible, the Holy Spirit said, treat your wife as you would your own flesh. Now, if you are a drunk, uh, if you are uh, an addict, if you uh, kind of hate yourself, if you eat sugar all the time and never work out and you're the size of a house, if there are things you do to your own body that are not good, then I suppose it would be fair to say that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's not saying, so if you treat yourself like garbage, treat her like garbage too. Fair to assume, all things being equal, what the word of God is telling you is treat her as well as you treat yourself when you are doing good for yourself. Right? Are we good? Can't see you, so I need to hear you. We're not good? Let me just roll back up here. We'll do it all again. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> so the expression... <laughs> Of your knowledge as a man married to a woman is you show honor to her as the weaker vessel. You bestow, you demonstrate that you're aware of her dignity, worthiness, and value. You show her that you hold her in the highest regard of all the things in your earthly life. Does that sound like the work of a tyrant? Does that sound like the work of a tyrant? Yeah, well, I needed more than one no. Quick review then, gentlemen. Give yourself up for, by the way, if you think nasty thoughts about me right now as the one sharing this message, can I just point out, I get to say all of this in front of my wife, who could at any point start laughing if she wanted to. <laughs> Give yourself up for her, set her apart from all others. Cleanse her in the gospel. Care for her like you do your own flesh. Show her as the weaker vessel that you hold her in the highest regard of all that has been entrusted to you 
on earth. Then what's the outcome of this for the husband? 1 Peter 3, 7. So that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, I know of no other reason in Scripture given why our prayers might be tedious or detained or hindered. I don't know. If, I mean, and again, I, I, maybe you could find something that you could like retranslate. But there, I promise you there's nowhere else in Scripture that says do this so that your prayers aren't hindered. This is the only verse like that I'm aware of. Treat your wife biblically in love so that your prayers will not be hindered suggests to me that God takes the treatment of his daughters very seriously. Mm -hmm. So if you are careless with your wife, somehow your prayer life will suffer. Makes sense, right? To imagine that a guy who is careless with his wife is probably also careless with his own soul. Or... Uh, this threat may be <clears throat> nothing more than an acknowledgement that a prayerless man is a loveless man. Or it stands to reason that a husband who fails to love his wife will be ashamed to ask anything of God. Right? There's the, that guilt barrier that you start putting up as soon as you know that you're in some unrepentant sin. You start hiding from God so your prayer life is hindered. Whatever else is true, your Bible's letting you know that if you are careful with her, your prayers will not be hindered. So you give yourself up for her, as Christ did for you. Set her apart from all others. Cleanse her in the gospel. Care for her like you do your own flesh. Show her as the weaker vessel that you hold her in the highest regard of all that's been entrusted to you on earth, a.k.a. love your wife. That's the biblical directive. So with our definition in mind, <laughs> let's appreciate the limitation placed on all husbands by this verse. Flip back to Colossians 3 and look really carefully at verse 19. Colossians 3, 19. It says, we'll just look at the first four words there in the ESV. It says, husbands, love your wives. So is there anyone who should be excluded from this love of a husband? <laughs> All other women, right? The ladies are here for it. The guys seem a little quiet. In Hebrews 13, 4, the, the writer of Hebrews says, let marriage be held in, in honor among all. The biblical mandate then is hold marriage in high esteem. So it makes sense that our society is crumbling because now we're, we're to the point where marriage is not just between one man, one woman. And I would say, you know, 10 years ago, if I said... Um, not only will there be homosexual marriage, but there will be people who will be switching genders, and there will be all kinds of confusion about that, and men will claim they can get pregnant. 
you would have been like, oh, he's ridiculous. Just like he's okay from the pulpit, but when you talk to him, he's crazy. But here we are. And I didn't say any of that. I didn't predict any of this. I don't think I could have, right? But that's how far we've gone in 10 years from the time the Supreme Court said, absolutely, whatever you want. Um, how far are we from marrying your dog or your own kid? I mean, what, what's the difference? Where is the moral boundary? If it's not one man, one woman, why are we arbitrarily saying you can't, why are we arbitrarily preventing people from marrying anybody that they want or anything that they want? You've thrown out the standard. That was a giant tangent. Hebrews 13.4 says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So kids, teens, young adults, single people of all ages. The Bible teaches that sex belongs, listen, you know this, but it sounds way cooler when you hear it come from me because I'm way cooler than whoever you first heard this from. <laughs> now you'll listen because you resent me. If this is sex, it's not, but if it were, it belongs in the context of covenant relationship. If you take it out of the context of covenant relationship and do it, Anywhere but in that context, it does harm. It hurts you. Maybe not right away, maybe not right that second, but there are consequences that come from taking sex outside of its biblically God-ordained context. Covenant relationship means you have made a promise before God and his people until death do you part at least to one another, if not before God and all of his people, because I have to make room for the desert island scenario. All things being equal, you will be married with somebody officiating and observing the promise that you make. <clears throat> A husband then has how many wives? Just the one. This is in large part so now I can say things like this because we're going to celebrate in a couple of months here. Um, Lisa and I are going to celebrate 20 years of marriage, which is kind of amazing for a couple of reasons. Number one, she looks like she must have been nine when we got married. And number two, uh, could you imagine being married to me for 20 years? It horrifies me to think about that. Uh, a husband then has the one wife in large part because of the demanding nature of the office of husband. Right? So what I'm saying is, because there's a lot involved in being a husband, it would be difficult to be a husband to more than one person. And second, because of the finite nature of the office holder, which means I don't have unlimited time and resources. So I learned early on that 
when I met fellows who liked to run around, I was baffled because I'm like, I can't, like I almost made the one that I have happy once. Like nailed it. And I think fondly of that time. And try to recreate it, right? And she would say, she's a gracious woman, so she would say, I wish you wouldn't say stuff like that. It makes me sound unreasonable. And it's not that she's unreasonable. It's that I'm finite. So I will come home in a mood at the worst possible time for her, like, emotional ecosystem to have to deal with that. And then I have to remind myself, don't behave like a jerk to your wife. Love her. And then, so then I'm correcting. I don't come home, like, perfectly anticipating what her frame of mind is going to be and fit exactly where she needs me in, in an encouraging and supportive role. That doesn't happen. I'm limited. What am I going to do if I had more than one of her to try to anticipate? <laughs> well, I tell you what. Let's put this in terms all guys can appreciate. Whether you're a Nebraska fan or not. If the best football coach, I was going to name a name, but I'm like, people will disagree with me. If the best football coach, college football coach in America, agreed to coach the Huskers, you'd be ecstatic, right? Be like, finally, we're going to come out of the Frank Solich curse and stop stinking. Except he would only do it three days a week and insisted on keeping his current coaching job as well and would only coach us on game day twice a month. So other than that, he'd have to go coach his other team. Hunting grounds. You, let's say you have a place where you, you know and nobody else knows, and you go there and you get a deer every year and then nobody knows about it. You've got an agreement with the person who owns the land. This is your place to go and hunt, and then you show up there this hunting season, and there's two or three other guys in tree stands out there. Um, you show up to work tomorrow, and there's a couple of other people at your desk doing your job. be a problem, right? These are examples of something being overextended. A coach, a hunting spot, your position at work. We are protective of things that we know are finite, limited, right? Are we as protective of, of our capacity <clears throat> as a husband? Or do we divide the resources, affections, and energy that we're supposed to give our wives among two or three other women? And I know all of you are going to be like... Pfft. Come on, who do you think you're talking to? We don't do that. Okay, uh, that includes the internet. The break room at work, uh, the block party, the hotel lounge, the gym. That includes any investment a husband chooses to make in any other woman other than the one that he's married to. Any investment. So unless it's your job to be a counselor, save your counsel. 
unless it's your job to be a therapist, save your therapy and go love your wife. Go counsel her. Go therapy her. Go encourage her. If you're just that good of a counselor that you can manage more than one woman, you'd better have a website and an appointment book and a title, and you'd also better be smart enough to see the danger you're in. The text before us insinuates a limitation. It's a narrow focus. It doesn't say more than other women. It says you cannot give yourself up for, set apart from all others, refresh in the gospel, care for like you do your own flesh, show as she is the weaker vessel that you hold in the highest regard all that has been entrusted to you on earth. You can't do those things with a handful of women. You can't. You're finite. Finally, look at the end of Colossians 3.19 with me. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. To terrorize, humiliate, injure, subjugate, crush, horrify, demean, insult, lord over, intimidate, or otherwise harm emotionally, mentally, psychologically, or physically the weaker vessel is to be the antichrist to your wife. Look at Psalm 34, 18 with me. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. <clears throat> All right. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What does that mean for the one who's breaking her heart and crushing her spirit? Psalm 138, verse 6 says, Though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud one he regards from far away. So God distances himself from the arrogant. What does that mean for the demanding, commanding, domineering, haughty husband? In Jeremiah 50, 31, God says, Behold, I'm against you, O proud one, declares the Lord God of hosts. For your day has come, the time when I will punish you. The proud one shall stumble and fall with none to raise him up. And I will kindle a fire in his cities and it will devour all that is around him. Are you all familiar with 1 Timothy 5.8? If anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially for the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. 1 Timothy 5.8 says that. How much more the one who abuses, listen to me, how much more, and I don't have anybody in mind, but we got to get the severity of this fixed in our minds and hearts. If the one who fails to provide for his family is denied, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, if the one who has failed to provide 
for his family, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever, then how much more the one who abuses the glory of the glory of creation? How much worse is that than being an unbeliever? There is no blessing reserved in Scripture for the one who overpowers his wife, who stands against her for his own pleasure instead of putting a shield around her protecting her. I'm unaware of any specific instruction uh, given in scripture on the topic of what to do with a wife who won't submit. Let me say that again. I am unaware of any specific instruction given in scripture on the topic of what to do with a wife who won't submit. But let's sound this out practically, okay? She won't submit, whatever you think that means. What do you do? What does your Bible tell you to do with your wife? Give yourself up for her, set her apart from all others, cleanse her in the gospel, care for her like she is your own flesh, show her as the weaker vessel that you hold her in the highest regard of all that has been entrusted to you on earth. And what is the outcome for the husband if he does those five things? Remember 1 Peter 3, 7, your prayers won't be hindered. You love your wife, Live with her in an understanding way as the weaker vessel, understanding that she is a co-heir in all of the gospel and your prayers won't be hindered. So what do you do when you've got a firecracker for a bride? <laughs> like, I don't have to holler and yell and I don't need to let every know what a, everyone know what a big man I am because I advocate for protecting women. There's plenty of pastors that do that. No, what, what I will do is sit with you, brothers, and repent in dust and ashes for all the times that I've utterly, utterly failed to be gentle with my wife. Because none of us are nailing this. Failed to be protective. Brandished a sword when I should have been her shield. Husbands, do not be harsh with your wives. Thanks, son that doesn't have a wife. <laughs> Let me try another angle here. Don't be harsh could also be translated, don't be embittered with or don't be exasperated with. Now, wives, listen, I know, sidebar, ladies, I know there's, it makes no sense for the Bible to give us this instruction since none of you ever does anything that might produce that response from your husband. But humor us for a few minutes, all right, while we finish dealing with the texts. Guys, sometimes our wives can be frustrating. Can I get an amen? <laughs> Look, if you need a ride home after church, <laughs> let me know. I'm sure I will. Um, our wives can be frustrating, and that's due to a number of factors. But at the top of the list, here's what I would have to say the source of our frustration is. We don't understand them, they don't understand us. You put those two things together in covenant relationship, it's going to get a little sparky sometimes, right? All right, try this. Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness uh, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Husbands, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So wives are called to submit. And I equated their submission to Jesus's in that same passage, uh, Philippians 2. So we're almost done. I mean, we are moments from being done. So husbands are called to love. Wives called to submit, husbands called to love. That does not mean, wives, that you don't have to love. There are other passages of Scripture that tell you to love us because it says, love your neighbor, and then it even says, love your enemy. So <laughs> hopefully we're caught somewhere in that net, right? What greater expression of love do we have than this one? Jesus Christ... subordinating to God, wrapping himself in flesh, coming to earth, and living so that he might redeem us from sin. What better example do we have? What greater expression do we have? And you'll be like, James, you don't understand. She is driving me nuts. She won't listen to reason I, not any of you, maybe somebody on the internet would hear this. So maybe you've had that moment where you go, I, I don't, it's like, it's like trying to teach a dog to ride a bicycle talking to this person. I can't do it anymore. I mean, we're talking about really simple stuff and she just doesn't get it. Who was the most right ever human being? I appreciate the honesty. Jesus was the most right. Right? Yeah, and what did he do? What did he do? Well, he took the form of a servant. Husband who is frustrated with your wife and having difficulty like understanding her and getting her to understand you. Jesus, who was the most right, took the form of a servant, humbled himself and died. And I know some of you are like, well, the last part's not an option or I would have taken it. <laughs> it's not what I mean. I don't mean physically dying. We're talking about the death of my preferences and the demand for my own glory. Husbands, don't we want our wives to see Christ in us? All right, well, then how about we die for them? How about we give ourselves up for them? How about we serve them? How about we love them? But I'm right. I know. And someday, so will she. But for now, love her. Amen? Let's pray.